I'm probably not. Um, I th uh, those two papers, I thought, went together really well. And I can be both shorter and um, more relevant um, <laughs> if I don't. But I do, have, I do have handouts with good quotations that I probably won't talk about. Um, you should, there are three, oops, there are three double-sided sheets that are, um, com I mean, each handout is three double-sided sheets. Um, are they? I'll probably put this at the bottom. It's one, two, three? Or? It's one, two, three. Yeah, yeah. they're, oh, okay. they're so all take, sorted. Take three off the um, top and, and pass it along. Put them in both directions. Good idea. Um, and uh, I'll probably talk a little bit about, order, yeah. um, about some of these. But um, I, this is not, sorry. But this, I'm not passing this on because these are not. One, oh, yeah, one, these two, are three. actually mine. That's your one, two. destroyed your <laughs> No, this is one, two, three, four, five. So you can don't look at the other side, which are which are my lecture notes on Casablanca. <laughs> so really, don't look at the other side. Um, we ran out of paper. Um, that's the Proust side, not the Casablanca okay. side. Um, five sheets for you. For you, five sheets. For everyone else, three because they're don't pass decided. it on. Yeah, keep that. That's okay. for you. It's a gift, <laughs> but you don't have to look at it. Probably, I'll probably talk about a little bit of it. Okay. Um, so what? Um, um, I guess what I want to do is um, uh, start out with with something that Nick said at the beginning, where he said um, that jealousy is what constitute the uh, constitutes the other as fascinating by making it unique. Um, and it's the uniqueness and non the interplay of uniqueness and non-uniqueness, or generality um, in Proust that um, at least is some point of overlap between um, what I had wanted to talk about today and what I think I will try to talk about today. Um, so um, one thing that um, also in response to Nick's paper. Um, uh, a passage not on the handout because it wasn't a passage that I was thinking I was going to talk about, but a passage that seems really interesting um, and that also uh, um, is one of the rare examples of something that I'm very, very interested in in um, Proust, um, an example of the narrator talking about himself in the present tense. Um, and there are, as far as I can tell, there are only about four or five moments where he does that in some non, more, in some non um, kind of eternal present way. That is, he makes lots of claims about what people are like, which are in the present tense, and there's lots of first person plural present tense moments about what we are like. Um, uh, we always do this, we always feel that way, and so on. But very rarely do you get a picture of the um, narrator narrating the book. Um, and that's um, a little bit unsurprising because, in fact, the time of this narration, if it exists at all, is several years after his death, uh, after Proust's death. Um, that is, he refers to, um, to events that happened in the Great War 10 years ago. Um, but Proust died in 22, which is, which is um, uh, um, what, eight years after the beginning of the Great War. Um, but he's, when he describes himself in the present tense, he's always describing himself um, as a figure nearly um, evacuated of characteristic or of personality. Um, the, um, the first thing on the sheet that I gave you, something that I just came across, which is from um, 
a uh, novel of, of um, Potanov from the 20s in a person. I, I like this because it sounds a lot like Proust, but also a lot like Freud. In a person, there lives a small observer. He takes part in neither actions nor sufferings. He is always cold-blooded and always the same. His employment is to see and to be a witness, but he has no voice in the life of the person, and it is not known why he, lonely, exists. This corner of a person's consciousness is illuminated day and night, like a doorman's room in a great house. For days on end, this doorman sits awake in the entrance. He knows all the inhabitants of his house, but not a single one of them asks the doorman's advice about his own affairs. <laughs> um, and that is um, what Freud, almost at the same time, uh, just a few years earlier, um, describes as um, our official ego, which is never at home in its own house. Um, that is, it's the part of us that's observing and in um, some relationship um, of helplessness to its own will, to our own will. So, I mean, that's one place to, to try and um, um, weave, um, stitch um, uh, um, some of my concerns together with some of the concerns of, of Dick and Nick. But what I, what I wanted to um, look at was another present tense moment, and I sort of have to translate a little bit on the fly, but I'll describe more than translate, which is um, towards the end of La Fugitive, um, the narrator, and for reasons that will, um, I hope, come clear in a little while, I don't call him Marcel. I'm, I'm sort of um, um, uh, a purist about not calling the narrator Marcel. Um, the narrator is describing um, the, the intermittences of, of the heart um, as he um, forgets Albertine after her death. Um, and um, he's in Venice with her mother, with his mother, um, and um, he is aware um, in a way that she doesn't want him to be of his mother's mourning for, her, for the death of his grandmother. Um, and um, the, the um, awareness that he has of um, her mourning partly takes the form of the way that her own face is turning into her, her, his grandmother's face, her mother's face. That is, he is recognizing now in his mother's face the beginning of that um, of, of the masquerade that will climax in the matinee at the Duchess de Gaumont. Um, in which everyone seems to be in in uh, in a mask, but they're in the mask of their own old age, including including him. Um, but he's seeing how his mother looks like his grandmother, and one aspect of their similarity is the way his grandmother had tried to hide her own concerns, um, something that he learned to or didn't learn to understood in her face, partly learned when he learned some facts. Um, about what her real concerns were. Um, he partly learned it, but partly was simply that um, she is a constant and she is recognizable immediately without, without um, some sort of uh, faculty of judgment, um, determinative judgment, let's say. Um, and now his mother looking like her is partly looking like her because she is trying to disguise her own mourning for her mother. So he recognizes a way that her face is imitating, is, is, is uh, morphing into his grandmother's face precisely in the way that she's trying to disguise, she's revealing the intensity of her loss by trying to disguise the intensity of that loss from her son 
that disguise is therefore revealing itself as her um, acting the way her own lost mother had acted. Um, and so the very act of disguise is, is simultaneously an imitation and therefore a revelation of, of um, his lost grandmother. And um, so the, the Sartrean moment that Dick and Nick were interested in, which is when the other is looking at us, there's a moment, and this leads to a present tense um, um, incident, uh, a very rare present tense incident for the narrator. Um, he's in Venice with his mother. She's trying to disguise her grief. He himself is recovering from his grief over Albertine. There's a parallel between them, which is um, um, coming out as he slowly becomes comes to look like his own mother um, as he ages. Um, and um, he is he goes to pick her up in the mornings, um, and he'll call to her from the gondola, and he'll see her. Um, um, ready to go out, um, and she's wearing um, a hat, and um, she's um, she's put a veil over her hat, um, less um, to to look um, well dressed before all the all the people in the hotel, which is also something his grandmother had always wanted to do to make sure she was well put together, less to look well dressed before all the people in the hotel, um, than to look to him. Um, as though she's not in mourning, to try to disguise her mourning from him. Um, so she veils her face so that he won't see the sorrow on her face, so that she'll look less mournful, less sad, almost consoled. Um, um, because, and this is, um, this is what he then realizes, um, he, he calls to her and she doesn't recognize him immediately. He's in a gondola, there's a crowd, he calls to her and she looks around for him. Um, and he can see her looking for him and not finding him. Um, again, as though she's looking for, a, there's a hint there, it's as though she's looking for her mother. Um, but as she's looking for him, she is also willing onto her face a dis, both a disguise and, uh, or love as a disguise, or the disguise that love is, which is to say she is willing onto her face a recognition um, of him, you know, that immediate recognition when you see someone, um, the moment that your face lights up because, oh, it's you. She's willing that onto her face, although she doesn't see him. And he can see her willing the moment of recognition onto her own face, um, pushing it as far out as possible, um, which is as far as her face itself is, as though the surface of her face is something that if only she could project it farther, the world would be safer and better for him. But you can only, the only control you have over your face, perceptually, it's as though we include everything, as though, um, and, and here I'm following something that, that um, Roger Calois um, talks about in his um, great, although forbiddingly entitled essay, um, Mimesis and, um, and Psychasthenic, what is it? Um, um, rep, uh, psych, um, my mimesis and psychasthenia. No, my mimesis and legendary psychasthenia. Yes. <laughs> that, that extremely, that extremely clearly, um, which, which just to hear the title is to think, yes, that will clarify everything for me. Um, but um, Calois says um, that 
Calois um, and Lacan follows him explicitly and overtly on this. Um, Calois says that seeing is a kind of mimesis, a kind of imitation, that what it means to see something in the world is essentially to do what imitation always does, which is to model yourself on the world, not to, not to draw the world into you through perception, but to project yourself onto the world. Perception, perception is an act of projection. Um, and it's mimetic projection, and it's you fit yourself into the world. And it's as, and the narrator sees his mother doing that, attempting to do that, to embrace him by, by um, perceiving the world so as to inhabit fully and to be present within the world that she's perceiving by perceiving it um, with enough projective power and enough love, but she fails because she can because she doesn't see where he is, and she can only get her expression to the surface of her face. And he says with a sort of wonder that um, she she pushed her she pushed the expression on her face as far as it could go, which was to the surface of her face. That's as far as it could go, which seems obvious, but for him is really important. Um, and um, but she's trying to show him love and comfort and recognition, and he's recognizing that she's trying to show him love and comfort and recognition. And then he says, and this is the present tense, um, that um, and this is this is at a famous um, um, arch at um, at, um, at uh, St. George um, the Major, uh, and um, he says that whenever he now sees a reproduction of this arch, which is where he saw her standing for him, waiting for him. Um, wherever he sees it, um, he, all he, um, what he has to, what he sees, um, this window has taken um, in his memory the sweetness of the things um, which um, had, in the same time um, that we were there and by our side, played their part in a certain um, hour which sounded the same for, for us and for those things. That is, so the arch um, played its part in the same scene um, as for him. Um, and so for him, this, this, this illustrious window keeps for me, he says, the intimate aspect, has for me the intimate aspect um, of a man of genius with whom we would have passed a month in the same country village. Um, and here I think he's ultimately thinking of, of his first encounter with El Steer at, at Balbec. Um, 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 who would have um, um, uh, contracted some friendship for us, would have, would, have, would have conceived a friendship for us for a time. Um, and therefore, ever since, he, and this is the present tense moment, um, each time that I see the um, mold, the, the cast of this window in a museum, um, I have to fight back my tears. Um, and it's quite simply because that cast um, um, says to me only the thing that can touch me the most I recall very well your mother. So that moment is a present tense moment when he says, now, today, when I go around, if I see this cast in a museum, it always says one thing to me, which is, I remember your mother very well. That's the moment when we find out his mother has died. Um, his mother doesn't die. It's not an event in the book. The death of his father and the death of his mother are referred to in the present tense, but they are not events that occur 
within the book. Um, people do die in the book. Saint Lou, for example, um, his grandmother probably most powerfully, and Albertine um, perhaps just as powerfully as his grandmother. Um, but the death of his mother and the death of his father um, occur in a different mode. And they occur in a mode um, which is a present tense report um, of the fact that they're gone. Um, so, um, and there's no point um, where they go, um, no, no moment when they die, but there's a present tense report of the fact that they're gone. Um, it's particularly striking because um, they, because his mother dies, um, unquestionably dies if you're, if you're keeping score, um, in the course of the, um, the writing of the narrative. That is, the Madeleine episode is, um, I was taking a walk just the other day. Um, it begins, and it was cold, and I came in, and um, um, my mother um, said, here, have one of these, these Madeleines with your tea, and I said, no, but then I said, okay, I would, and I did, and suddenly I almost got the entire past back. Um, unfortunately, I failed, but I almost got the entire past back, he says. Um, and so, but that's, that's the beginning of the, of the um, work of, of, of recovery of memory um, that's occurring in this book. And then sometime in the course of it, that's gone. Now, another, so there, there are a couple of things that, um, I'll, I'll actually, I think we should have as much time for discussion as possible, so I, I won't go on very long. Um, but what I want to um, do is talk about a couple of moments um, that, that um, are, are relevant there. So um, the place, I guess I'll just talk about, about three things. I'll, I'll promise to do that. Um, the reason that I insist on, on calling the narrator the narrator um, is partly um, you can see it in the quotation um, that's on your page three. That is, it would be the second sheet for everyone but Stanley. Um, and this is. Um, something that Dick referred to, which is, um, or it was Nick referred to, which is the pleasure of seeing Albertine asleep. Um, and um, he spends a lot of time thinking of her, of her asleep. It's important to know or to notice the relationship of Albertine to his mother in his own psychic economy. That is, um, Albertine, um, he, 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 Albertine is necessary to him as his mother's kiss had been necessary to him at the beginning. Um, but also, it's now Albertine's asleep and he's awake. And sometimes what enables him to fall asleep is the fact that Albertine's already asleep. And then he, he can, um, as he says, he can embark upon the sleep of Albertine, upon the, the, um, the, 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 the marine-like swelling of her, of her breath. Um, but um, sometimes she would then wake up. Um, and, some, and the description of the way she would wake up is a description that's quite familiar to us by, by 2,000 pages into um, the book, which is um, a description of how when we, wake, when we wake up, we don't know where we are. And we will go through all the stages of our lives, um, kind of recapitulate our own ontogeny. As though, as though awakening recapitulates ontogeny. Um, we'll go through all the stages of our life and try to figure out where we are. And now she wakes up that way. Um, and um, so that she, so that for a moment she wonders where she is. 
Um, I guess I'll read the English. It was even, um, so at the bottom of the page, it was even more so to me that when from the underworld of sleep she climbed the last steps of the stair of dreams, it was in my room that she was reborn to consciousness and life, that she asked herself for an instant, where am I? And seeing all the things in the room round about her, the lamp whose light scarcely made her blink her eyes, was able to assure herself that she was at home as soon as she realized that she was waking in my home so that um, she's at home in his home. Um, uh, his mother, the reason Albertine is there, by the way, is that his mother is in Cambrai um, caring for his, his great aunt. So his mother is doing the sort of thing his grandmother had done. Um, in that first delicious moment of uncertainty, it seemed to me that once again I took a more complete possession of her since, whereas after an outing it was to her own room that she returned, it was now my room that as soon as Albertine should have recognized that it was about to enclose the container without any sign of misgiving in the eyes of my mistress. So she doesn't know where she is, but um, as she recognizes it, there's no sign of misgiving. This would be an, a moment of, um, of her showing what she really, how she really feels. Um, but her eyes remained as calm as if she had never slept at all. And then the uncertainty of awakening revealed by her silence <coughs> was not at all revealed in her eyes. As soon as she was able to speak, she said, my blank, or my dearest blank, mon blanc, or uh, mon, ch mon chéri blank, followed by my Christian name, which, if we give the narrator the same name as the author of this book would be, my Marcel, my <coughs> dearest Marcel. Now, I should say that a little bit later, she calls him Marcel again in the course of a narrative. And that's the only other time um, that the name comes up. And there it comes up straight away. On the other hand, um, I ask this as a question. Does anyone know the name of his narrator, the Christian name uh, of his narrator, the Christian name of his grandmother? <coughs> I thought not. Um, she's named on page five, and then never again, um, uh, Batilde. And um, she's there. I'm interested in the anonymous figures um, in in Proust and or in this book, um, and the figures whose names the one figure's name we don't remember is Montgomery's his his grandmother's. We never find out the name of his mother or his father, or of him. Um, and then there are figures who um, and and there and it's. There's an interesting, if, if you do a list of the anonymous or quasi-anonymous figures in the book, um, they form um, an interesting bunch. Another one is um, the friend of um, Mademoiselle Ventoy. That is the um, figure who he completely misinterprets as a sadist, um, when in fact what she's doing is trying to, um, uh, she, she, it, it's an act of extraordinary generosity that looks like sadism to the narrator. Another one, of course, is, is the um, woman whom he meets on a train and he regrets that he doesn't speak to her and Albertine says, oh, people always meet again. Um, and then he says, but this time she was wrong. I never saw her again. Um, a line that will then echo with the death of Albertine. I told Albertine, I put aside all, all my, my fussiness. I asked her um, to come back. Um, and I would love her on her own terms whenever she wanted. And then she never, alas, she never returned. Um, and that moment, there's a similar moment in Jean Santoy. Um, which is the first draft of this book and which is a third-person narrative, and that's something that I want to get back to in a minute. Um, in Jean Santoy, he sees someone on a train. Um, 
and he um, is very interested in this person, and someone says, don't worry, you'll see him again. Um, and he's actually a young bicyclist, which puts to, which, which a, a characteristic that sort of gets distributed among several characters in, um, in A La Recherche. Um, and then he does see him again. Um, so, so he's skeptical of that idea, but then he does see him again, and he's really glad about it, and he'd forgotten that he would be promised to see this guy again, but he does see him again, and that's great. Um, and so it's as though something successful has happened. Um, and then after that second time that he sees him, the bicyclist goes away, and then he never sees him again after that. And he says, well, I did see him again, but what did it, what did it matter? It was, I thought I'd seen him between two trains to begin with, and in fact, I did see him between two trains. Um, that's, that's all it turned out to be anyhow. Um, now, um, the striking thing, and this is again something I insist on along with the narrator's anonymity. I don't insist on it exclusively, by the way. I think, I think the other, um, other readings are, are, um, are just as um, important, um, is that at the end of, um, of Le Temple when he's ready to write the novel, um, like Bergat, um, he has a stroke. And um, he realizes that now it's too late. He will never be able to write this thing. And so there's, so in the same way that the author and the narrator are mm -hmm. not the same person, and the narrator is saying, somehow saying I here, but by that I he's meaning the author and not the narrator, um, that's a sort of uh, a single phrase um, structure um, that applies to the entire book. That is that um, this book is a long narration about how when the narrator got to the point, when the first person narrator got to the point when he could write the book, when he, when he had recovered the past enough to write the book, it was too late and therefore he didn't write it. Um, and the fact that you're reading it does not falsify um, the conclusion that he didn't write it in the same way that the fact that it would be my Marcel, um, my dear Marcel, does not falsify the fact that we don't know the narrator's name. Um, so Jean Santoy, so the, or, or to, one way to put this then is to say that there's um, an interesting way in which um, the non-existence of this book of this text, of these pages, um, in the world that they describe, even though they do exist in our world, that's a characteristic of third-person narrative, not a first-person narrative. That is, a characteristic of third-person narrative is, here's what happens in this imaginary world, um, and in this imaginary world, this book doesn't exist. Um, first-person narrative um, from the start, first-person written narrative from the start, um, has always um, included the existence of the pages that you're reading in the world in which you're reading them. In the 20th century, um, that's not so true anymore, and even in the 19th century, that's not so true anymore. Uh, once, once there are all sorts of interesting conventions about um, novel reading, but if you think of Clarissa or Pamela or um, any epistolatory novel or any <coughs> journalistic novel, um, going back to Defoe, there's always the fiction um, that 
you're reading these pages because the fictional character who wrote them did actually write them, did take them down, and somehow those pages survived. Um, one way to see this fiction is the um, extreme vanishing rareness of a past tense first person narrative, not a journalistic narrative, not uh, my diary of this year in which I'm sure everything will go well. Um, but um, here's some stuff that happened to me 10 years ago, um, that it's absolutely out of bounds for the narrator to die. Um, in a first-person narrative. Even if the pages don't exist in the world of the narrative, even if you imagine a sort of um, um, uh, uh, Philip Marlowe character saying, um, um, and I promised her never to tell anyone about this, and that's a secret I kept. And you, 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 it, it would be wrong to say, what do you mean you kept it? You just wrote this book. Um, nevertheless, you can't, ha you can't have a first-person narrator die. It's a, it's a very, very jarring effect. Um, but you're almost getting that effect here. That is, that, that he's saying that he didn't write. He's saying all throughout that he didn't write um, what we've just read, that it never got written. Um, and that vanishing um, in the present tense of um, the specificity of the hero, because what I, what I want to do is distinguish between narrator and hero, um, narrator and main character, that vanishing of the specificity of the hero. Um, I think that's, that's something that's very, very striking and also very, very much um, what the, the, the discovery that he's making um, in the course of moving into the present or in the course of finding himself in the present is about. And um, I think the way I want to want to say this, and I'll, I'll just end um, with this, is by looking at, at um, is by talking about, but, but, but I'll just say this in a phrase, um, about the relationship of narrator and narratee in um, Proust. Lots of people take, take um, Jeanette um, um, most, most obviously, um, take this book as a good way to do an exposition of the concept of the narratee and what the narratee is, is um, the figure who a reader would imagine is the intended audience for the narrative that we're reading. That's a, that's a highly simplistic um, first approximation of what a narratee is. Um, and um, the uh, um, idea would be that, um, that the narratee is the person who has the background to understand the things that, do, that don't get explained um, and doesn't have to have the background to understand the things that will get explained. Um, one of the things that I'm very interested in, I was actually thinking about this, it, about Proust and Cavellian terms um, a while ago, and, and I have a, a, a one um, line um, uh, um, aphorism about Proust that, that in Proust there t you do have two kinds of skepticism, um, external world skepticism and other mind skepticism, but unlike in the way that, that Stanley analyzes it, um, in Proust there are many external worlds, all of which are sources of anxious skepticism, but there's only one other mind that may or may not exist. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, that's sort of where we end up. But to give an example of this, this is where we find out the death of his father and um, 
uh, a couple of us talked about this yesterday. This is at the very beginning, when, um, the scene that Dick was talking about also, which is when um, his father sends him, um, send, says his mother can go lie down with him. Um, this is uh, your second to last page. He looked at me for a moment. It's, it's the beginning. Many years past. Well, it's actually above that on the page. Okay, yeah. He looked at me for a moment with an air of annoyance and surprise, and then when Mama had told him, not without some embarrassment, what had happened, said to her, go along with him then. You said just now that you didn't feel like sleep, so stay in his room for a little. I don't need anything. Um, in French, and my French is terrible, but, it's, uh, but still, um, uh, what he says is, mais va donc avec lui. Um, so just, just hang on to that, but go with him then. Um, go ahead. Go along with him then. You said just now that you didn't feel like sleep, so stay in his room for a little. I don't need anything. Um, she says, no. He says, no, it's OK. Um, you'll end by making him ill, and a lot of good that will do. Just go ahead. I'm off to bed anyhow. I'm not nervous like you. Good night. Then, skipping down on that page we get to, many years have passed since that night. The wall of the staircase up which I had watched the light of his candle gradually climb was long ago demolished, and in myself too many things have perished which I imagined would last forever, and new structures have risen, given birth to new sorrows and new joys, which in those days I could not have foreseen, just as now the older difficult of comprehension. It is a long time too since my father has been able to tell Mama to go with the child. Um, that go with the child there is va avec le petit. Um, Never again will such hours be possible for me. But of late, and here we are in the present tense, I've been increasingly able to catch, if I listen attentively, the sound of the sobs which I had the strength to control in my father's presence and which broke out only when I found myself alone with Mama. Um, so um, that's the place, um, although we may not know it at the time, that's the place that we know that his father has died um, because his father can no longer say this. Um, we're about to find out that his mother is still alive um, at the time of writing or at the, at the, the, the pseudo time of pseudo writing. Um, so, so this is where we find out that his father has died, although he never dies in the course of the narrative. Um, the way we find out mm -hmm. um, 2,500 pages that his mother has died. But what I want to point out to point out is that when he quotes his father, go with the child, va avec le petit, um, his father hasn't said that. Um, that is that if you look at the direct quotation of his father before um, what he has said, the closest thing he said to that is va donc avec lui, um, and not va avec le petit. So um, even in the course of narrating that moment, um, there's a transformation um, in his narration, which I would describe, and I'll just try to describe this um, uh, way too briefly, but I'll end here. I would describe as a change in point of view in the course of narration from the point of view of the child um, that in, into whose, into whose um, experience he has entered as he remembers intensely his, his desperate desire for her to come to the present tense where he thinks of his little, little self um, as Lippity, 
Um, that is, he's speaking in a sense from the same perspective as the adults there, and speaking to an adult. That is the narrative. That is the 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 second quotation. It's been so so long since he's been able to say, "Va avec le petit," um, is a quotation which is also um, um, marks a shift over the divide into the other point of view, into the point of view backwards. The important thing being that the narrative, or for me, the important thing that the narratee is someone who will also look at the child as little as Lepiti, as though the narrator and the narratee have now um, taken the place of um, the, uh, the, the, the romantic, the family romantic father and mother that he saw as a child and that he thought of as permanent and deep and real, and what it turns out they were and what he is now um, in that Calwasian way, absorbing into himself, is that no, um, what it means ultimately to be um, a human is to be this anonymous narrator speaking to an anonymous narratee um, about things that are not there now, and that's the trajectory that the that the writing of the book describes, as opposed to um, the story that that um, it tells as it describes that trajectory. And I guess I'll stop there. They were too. <laughs> I knew you did. where he talks about the death of the soldier, you know, that's in the present. Mm -hmm. There's the whole yeah. discussion of patriotism, yeah. and, then he's like, oh, and he's like, I want to stop this story. Right, for the love of the... I want to talk yeah. about a real yeah. individual, and I'm going to name the... Yeah. And even says, I, I usually don't name people, but I'm yeah. actually going to name... The, and it's almost as if, I know you're not going to believe me that I'm actually breaking <coughs> yeah. the spell. Well, it's like well, the Riviere family. Yeah, yeah that's... Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. 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 He yeah, says, in, really the, in this book in which there isn't one real person, right. in which none of, none of this novel is a no, novel of clay, or Ramana Clay, um, there is, and everything is What's been beautiful invented. about that is that they're referred to as Francois' millionaire. Right. So, what? Yeah. So, Francois doesn't is fictional, but these people are relevant. Yeah, but that's another example of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, yeah, and they showed such extraordinary generosity, right. which is that's why right. he names them here. That's right. Yeah. right, right. He says, like the mother, like the grandmother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh. I had a very um, elementary question to ask you. And it's very unsubtle. Um, and so I'm really embarrassed to ask it because you're probably less so subtle. But it, uh, there's a question that remains in my mind. Um, and that's, um, you know, I find it very, very compelling. Um, uh, your argument that um, you, you, your argument about the, um, the scene when he meets Rachel, that it's not simply sort of this ir irreversible trajectory um, uh, from the imaginary to the real, and where the real has the force of authority and exposes the imaginary and all this deliciousness. Um, but what I heard you saying was that there were competing imaginaries, uh, well, competing is the 
simplicity exists for the same thing. Um, what I want to understand about that is why that doesn't, and I can see for you that it doesn't, and I'll clear why, why that doesn't resolve into a, um, a skeptical um, uh, pandemic. Um, you know, in, in a, you know what I mean. Um, why is the point being not, well, you can never get the truth, and it's just a question of adopting and imagining the That's an interesting question. I mean, it could be the, the um, could be that that question is really forcing us to think more about the nature of a secret, right? Because, um, so if the personality of the other is constituted as a secret, and it exerts a certain pull on me, but that pull is itself, if you wish, the push that I put on it, then um, the realization that um, the inadequacy of my response, I realize that it's actually not what I thought it to be, might not lead to skepticism if the secret is still somehow vital. That my, it might just be more curiosity, so to speak. So there's a way in which I think this notion of the secret is always protecting us or protecting transform shells from a complete breakdown into what you're calling the pandemic of skepticism, um, insofar that there's still the allure of the promise of something to be discovered. And that's almost the, you know, the element of the Bildungsroman, which of course is always misfiring. There's always the allure that every stage will resolve itself into setting up another stage where maybe the truth will be revealed, um, and we further into it, enter into it. In that scene, and there's something I didn't talk about, that those images of the two conflicting imaginaries, there's also another optic to read it through, because <coughs> the way in which Marcel describes the foliage as lilacs and angels, it starts off by a description of maidens, right? Um, and, and first it's pears, so the symbol of lust. Then lilacs, flowering, right? So flowering girls, and then the angel is ambiguously bisexual. Um, so there's a sense in which one could argue that there's a realization of Marcel of his own realization that maybe Saint Lou is bisexual, and his attraction to that, which is sublimated in his projection onto nature, so he doesn't really realize it. On the other side, the imaginary construct, if you wish, or constitution of Rachel is, in a sense, so over the top that one could argue that it's also masking, but at the same time revealing the sort of homosexual pen, you know, tendency of Samu himself. That gets revealed to us as a reader later on when they're at the theater. And if you remember at the theater, they're backstage, and there's an a, a actor who's performing and Salou gets very jealous and think that um, the actor is winking at, um, at Rachel and that, you know, that there's something going on and he confronts Rachel and Rachel says, well, you know, teases him and saying, well, maybe this actor who's playing the role of a female can satisfy me more than you. So then she herself is going to suddenly suggest the sort of the secret of her sexuality. So those images, I think, are very complex because there's a sense in which the, you know, the if you wish, the um, deflation of the imaginary only heightens and almost focuses the sense of the secret. And, and some people argue that the trajectory of the recherche is really one where increasingly the sense of the other as secret has become more and more focused to their sexual lives. So by the time you get to Albertine, it really is so much about is she a lesbian, is she not? Chalus is clearly you know, engaged sort of publicly in terms of the consciousness of the novel in sexuality, such that that's the sharpening of the sense of the secret. Mm -hmm. yes. 
is a very simplistic formulation. Trace of the real, um, if that is comparable to what you're describing, is this amour, which itself can't be demystified. That's right, but it is because, you know, put it in common terms, because if you wish, my subjectivity is amour, right, then any demystification only in a sense increases the allure of trying to fill it with an image that fits. So, in a sense, the perpetual sense of, you know, the desire of desire is precisely not the cue for a pandemic of skepticism, but a cue for a kind of what's polymorphously perverse life. But also this heightened sense of, I need to have a kind of sense of the unknowable. And, the, and then almost the stakes of having something unknowable, mm -hmm. um, which again for Lacan is itself the illusion, because the unknowable is itself the mask of the real. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's not really the confrontation with the real. Yeah. One thought I had in relation to both of your papers was that I mean, one thing I think is really great about Proust that is unique to him, I think, is that it's only in a novel of such incredible length that the sort of practical dimension of this sort of set of problems can be worked out. So that, like in the Rachel instance, it really is just the huge span of time that exists between then and now that enables, that funds the situation of having two completely different views of a person where in a shorter novel, you'd have to have a situation where you just had two different views of a person. In this novel, you can actually have two completely separate sets of experiences that occur incredibly distant from one another in the text that like, create the situation of, of having the secret. And the secret is just the, it's like early in the, the secret is just the possibility that at some future time, what presented itself as a finished fact will turn out to be an unfinished fact, right? So the, the, the secret, like, the secret that Rachel held when Marcel, or the narrator, encounters him, encounters her in the brothel, is a sort of unrealized causal secret. It's like an unrealized fact, fact of the future that hasn't been established yet because the thing that happens where she becomes Sun Lu's mistress hasn't occurred at that time, right? If I, if I remember this, you know, yeah. right? So, yeah. so there's a way like that the, um, but I think relates a little bit to what you're saying that the, the just the. The, the distance between uh, the the composition of the novel and the things being narrated is something that has a sort of cash value in the novel in this problem of of secrets, right? Um, and I mean, one it's one version of what you said is something Proust says in, or I guess it's the early part of it's in Marcel's trip uh, train trip to Baalbek, where he says that when you think about what's beautiful, you just um, you create kind of like a sum of all your past experiences, um, which is you take the average of the sum of your past experiences. And the average of the sum can't really be beautiful because it's just an average. Um, it's the new beautiful thing that isn't included in the sum that's going to strike you as interesting. But of course, as soon as you see it, you're just going to fold it into the average, uh, into a new average, a slightly changed average later. So it has. I guess what I'm trying to get at is, it seems to me the reason it doesn't fold into like a huge problem of skepticism is because it's not about, um, it's not just about the idea that sort of full stop, um, you can't know anything about how someone exists or about their life. 
it's a, it's a sort of more temporal, practical idea that because you can't anticipate the future, obviously you can't predict what's coming, and because you can't remember what happened, and because unless you embark on an enormous project of analysis and weaving together to see all the different sides of a thing, um, they're just, it's like the, the, the consciousness is too small compared to the quantity of possibility for comprehension that exists in just a very straightforward, practical way. I don't know, like, so in, the, in, in your talk in the beginning, think about, about um, involuntary will, I mean, about the, the involuntary, <laughs> not involuntary will, but the involuntary, like one thing that always strikes me about Proust is that part of the reason why the involuntary is so important is just because the will, when seen on the scale of the, the whole novel, is so farcical. So that the, it just seems ridiculous, the whole idea that you're going to, for example, exert your will in order to capture some object of your passion or your love seems silly once you see very obviously that in 10 years or 15 years it's going to be a completely separate and essentially randomly chosen object of love for whom you're going to feel the exact same feelings and for whom you're going to go through the exact same practical steps. The, the whole idea of doing anything by choice, like the, the, the scale of will and choice is so dwarfed by the scale of possible outcomes that it seems senseless to pursue, like not only senseless but profoundly misleading to pursue your wants now. Right. That, I don't know say, what I mean. Just to say one, one thing just about that yeah. last part that you said. It strikes me that um, that's, um, uh, I mean, there is the, the theme yeah. of the um, uh, essentially uh, projective uh, and substitutable um, nature of love, that, that each object of love is, is, uh, is pro when properly seen, is, is, a, is a, simply a substitution instance in some in some series. And that theme is indeed sounded there. Um, but it strikes me that this is one of those places where the actual events of the story yeah. uh, utterly belie <laughs> you know, whatever the, this, um, yeah. the, the line that, that so, so there is at least that distance between what in a sense is a kind of theory of human relationality that's sort of being um, enunciated there and what's actually being, uh, the, the, what's actually in the story um, being told, and, and, and um, we have to make, anyway, mm -hmm. sort of more of that difference. Mm -hmm. But I think the skill thing is, is quite to the point because uh, Mary Magdalena is the prostitute who becomes the saint. You don't realize about that Rachel until the end, where she's the one reciting, right? Again, saint, the corrupted saint, right? But she's now the star of this. And then there's the contrast with La Belma, who's fallen. So there is that art. Uh, uh, right. um, and what's interesting there, and maybe this speaks to sort of, you know, kinds of experiences that are not involuntary memories within the text, is that um, when um, Marcel meets Rachel in the, the Bal de Tête, he doesn't recognize her. Um, and he sees her reciting the lines, she recognizes him, and, and, he, and she is winking at him. But he's puzzled, why is this woman winking at me? Meaning, he doesn't remember the scene that he witnessed with Saint-Lou, where the actor was winking at her, and because mm -hmm. of that, Saint-Lou was mad and then slapped later the journalist. But we, the reader, remember that involuntarily. So there's a kind of involuntary memory that's only our prerogative as readers, which is denied Marcel. And it's only because Bloch 
wants to, you know, Blocky is still scheming to, you know, climb <laughs> the top of the ladder. He comes up because he wants to talk to Lao to, excuse me, to Rachel afterwards when the Duchess says, you know, oh, isn't she great? And Masa doesn't know who she is, and then Block whispers in the ear, you know, something like, oh, doesn't she look wonderful, Rachel, and things mm -hmm. like that, and then all of a sudden he remembers. So that's an example, mm -hmm. again, both of this scale, but also how involuntary memory, I think, also on the part of the reader, is something that I think Proust expects us to have, or sort of conditions us to have, uh, uh, but a memory that's not, that's denied almost the mm -hmm. character, or the character that doesn't have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's also, I mean, going back, back to something, there, there was a line you quoted where um, the the phrase is um, those same um, gamin, that is that at the very end he's going, uh -huh. and um, we don't know, and I'm, I don't remember whether he knows, but we don't know when he's on his way to the matinee there, that um, in fact the Duchess de Gramont is not in any way the same gamin mm -hmm. that um, that has been the the sort of um, the first figure of, well, the first figure of family romance, that is the first um, substitute for his mother um, it, throughout. Um, but now that it's, that it's um, the, the remarried widow Bergeron, um, and, and that is just so shocking, <laughs> that, yeah. that, 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 that last surprise. Um, and, but nevertheless, you know, so I was, I was quite struck by your, by your reading that line, which said the same. And I didn't remember that he'd said that, but that's, that just seems so surprising. And that's a place where um, it felt like, like um, there was some interesting interplay between our involuntary memory mm -hmm. or just what it means to recognize a character mm -hmm. and then to find out that, well, actually you just got it wrong. So mm -hmm. like the recognition <laughs> of, of Rachel and also, I was I, I was thinking about um, the the strange throwaway um, much later, where he finds out who Gilbert was, who the guy Gilbert was walking mm -hmm. with, that um, that Charles sort of ended, yeah, and that ended his relation. That that was the last mm -hmm. um, straw for mm -hmm. him, and then it turned out to be Leia dressed as as a man. <laughs> and that's just a throwaway, but again, it's mm -hmm. this this sort of yeah. um, odd. Um, uh, surprise, um, which which you're right. We we have to remember, um, and the very fact of surprise is is because of something some involuntary recognition. Um, you can't will surprise. Yeah. I mean, the question, the thing that occurred to me was because you started with the fairy tale idea, uh -huh. and that's totally my experience of Proust. But then I was thinking, in a fairy tale, you know, when you find out that the that beautiful maiden is actually the Green Knight or whatever, that's been true the entire time. Like that's always been true. That secret has been has existed from the beginning, and it was kept as a secret. Whereas in Proust, it seems like the secrets are created over time, right? Uh -huh. And is and the revelations are not. It's not that it was always. I mean, that this interesting, right? Because yeah. it makes you wonder from what vantage point do the things feel like secrets, and from what uh -huh. vantage point do they feel like developments in the plot? If you could talk about it, or developments in the story, that the secrets are sort of built up just because of the the enduring nature of the story and of the, of the life, right? The secrets are just going to be built up over that life. But then from a point of view of, from the, as a reader, you do feel like they're revelations of things that were always to be, or always to be, or they were always that way. But they weren't always that way because they just happened to be that way over time. You know, it just happened that, mm -hmm. that that's, that's the way that people arrange themselves in life. 
but it's sort of like in that retrospective point of view from, from the end, they seem ordained that way or built up that way from the beginning, and it's one of the weird things about the novel that I felt came out sort of of this, you know. Tell me if this is getting at, at one of the differences you had in mind. Um, you could think many, uh, the, the very idea of a secret is uh, a natural fit for narrative structure just in general, right? So the story is the revelation of, of a secret. Uh, um, and uh, um, why the secret thing was a secret rather than more widely known is, is, is part of the story right. as well. But is the um, difference you're seeing in the, in the Christian narrative that... Uh, there you've got much more um, uh, secrets come in and out of existence, yeah. right? And, yeah. and and are made and created and exposed and and um, the the temporality of the the creating of the secrets uh, and the undoing of it is something that um, yeah. is represented sort of over and over as part of this large large yeah, story. Yeah, to do with remembering and forgetting and with crossing paths and with all those things that. I don't know if it's right to say they're represented as occurring by chance, but they're represented as contingent in the sense of not being inevitable, not being, being true to life, that, that they just happen that way. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to throw out just two more passages, one, one if, relating to your, your talk and, and one relating to yours, just so that they are eventually um, part of the discussion. Uh, but... Um, yeah, because they're both wonderful. Thank you very much. Um, um, so about, um, I think I'll start with, with, with yours, because my, my question is, is briefer, and I may have just missed something, but um, the great stuff you were, you were saying about uh, um, the mother's uh, generous, gracious attempt to hide her own sorrow her own mourning for her mother, Marcel's grandmother, the narrator's grandmother. Um, <laughs> why shouldn't we call her? <laughs> why does she get that name? Um, anyway, um, and um, you didn't make explicit reference to one of the, the very most poignant moments in the novel, I take it, which is... Uh, his self-reproach after his grandmother's death, which, which only about comes into... Exactly, and that's yeah. all about the grandmother masking her trouble right, exactly. from him, and it's the very, how awkward and, and absurd she looked, you yeah. know, with that hat and, like, pose. You know, it was the very expressivity of her face, the pose in that picture that he objected to and said these, these, these hurtful words to her about that he, uh, you know... Uh, then um, has to just um, yeah no that's uh, that yeah that's yeah. precisely the way so in a, in a sense the mother is, is only a setup for the much more cataclysmic uh, um, instance of that but the mother the thing with the mother comes after oh it comes after that's yeah true. That's so right. but that's so, and right. I, and I take it that what enables him to recognize what his mother is doing is that he's learned um, the lesson of the photograph of uh-huh, his grandmother uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. yeah yeah yeah. But what that also means is that he's seeing her as already only a photograph while she's still alive. Uh-huh. <clears throat> yeah. um, and what I wanted to just have in the, the, for, for after our break or whenever, but, but um, a couple of 
uh, again, just like to pointing to other other moments in in, in the text. Um, uh, so about the, the late recognition or not quite recognition of Robert as he's leaving the brothel and the, the great attention you focused on, uh, on that moment as a, um, um, I don't, as a, as a as I don't want to call it a, a moment of recognition because it's not exactly that. Um, but that and connected with the beautiful mourning and elegy uh, of uh, Robert after after he is killed, um, and in connection with um, the uh, you say about the, the the cloak and weaving and and, and, and the writing uh, process and stitching and connected with that, um, a moment it seems that that description that late description of leaving is is deliberately remembering is the the uh, the really in a sense it's the moment when. Uh, the narrator first, you know, fell in love, as it were, with uh, Robert. When at Reef Bell, he leaps over the counter uh, to get his cloak, as it happens, to, to to cover him, and he's described in that movement as with precisely that unmistakable agility uh, uh, that he'd never seen before, and is the, you know, it is it is captured at that moment as being the essence of of, of Saint Lou. It's precisely that scampering uh, movement in the service of this, you know, bringing this cloak to, to poor shivering uh, Marcel and, and, and the restaurant by the, by the sea. So, um, so it's very, so, I mean, in a sense you have, uh, it is connected very directly with the, with the morning, as you say, but, so, but that moment, in a sense, it, 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 uh, it connects each beginning, middle, end of that. Yeah, and I, oh, think that's, relationship. I, I think uh, that's right, and that's uh, interesting that, um, that in a sense it's sort of, so you have the one cloak, right? Uh, and that's in the, in the passage of seeing him, he says, I don't recognize the uniform, I don't recognize it, because he's wearing a heavy cloak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and the sense of him being ahead of himself, uh, it also comes back in the morning where he remembers the, uh, him, in Baalbek with the monocle always in front of his face. Oh, yeah. Right? Uh -huh. Which is a scene that's described as Baalbek, which again iterates this sense of the vitality uh -huh. of Baal as charging ahead. Uh -huh. That's then repeated in what I'm calling the elegy, and again, it's the monocle that's ahead. Right, right. Um, and there, what's interesting, and, and, it's, and it's, it's nice that you remind me of this thing in Rivebel, is this idea of the cloak as if it's, you know, it's moving without being pushed by a soul, right? There's uh -huh. no person uh -huh. there. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, one of the things that I wanted also to look at and get in my notes is uh, if you look at the two performances of La Berna, the first performance where uh, Marcel um, is sort of, um, in a sense, disappointed and doesn't understand what he sees mm -hmm. and just claps because everyone is clapping, and also where La Berna's performance, at least in his eyes, um, isn't perfect, isn't mm -hmm. perfected. The second successful one where then he describes what he's learned, the lesson that he's learned. Um, and I have the passage, because I'm, I'm just going to read it. He describes La Berma and the tone, you know, how she speaks. Um, he says that, um, so he's, I'll just read a bit of it because it's a very long thing. He says, this voice is an embodiment which, unlike human bodies, does not stand in the way of the soul like an opaque obstacle that prevents a us from seeing it, but is there like a purified, 
vitalized garment <laughs> in which the soul is diffused, so ubiquitous, uh -huh. and can be discovered. Uh -huh. So the model of you know perfect recitation, uh -huh. uh, it, which is successful in the second La Bella performance, and here I was thinking of, of your right. comments, um, which I think connects to how I, I want to think about this, that the first La Bella performance, I think, can be seen as exemplifying the Sartre notion of the imaginary. And Sartre in, in L'Imaginaire talks about a, an artist performing a character, and Sartre thinks that the performer has to irrealize their body in order to make present the character. Mm -hmm. um, but that's precisely the view of performance that Proust is rejecting, because in the second successful one, by focusing on the voice, um, it's the way, in a sense, as you described it, that something that is outside becomes, sort of takes me into it, mm -hmm. such that now the, vo the words that I'm speaking, mm -hmm. as if they're coming from somewhere else, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, and, and he says that fed, the character fed, interiorized La Berma, uh -huh. and then when La Berma speaks, who is speaking, right? Mm -hmm. um, she's speaking and imposing, as he says, her genius, mm -hmm. interpreting, but the source of those words are something as if from the outside. So it says, uh, and I remember you had said something which I thought caught my attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got my, my notes, the, uh, you had this nice way of talking about how it's uh, projecting into the other such that the words coming from within are coming from without. Uh-huh, uh-huh, formulated uh -huh. it. I would say if you go back and look at that description of the La Belma performance, that's exactly what you're getting. Uh-huh, you know? uh -huh, that's nice. That's um, nice. Which is, again, a kind of, I read it as a kind of anti-Sartrean notion of the imagination. Because uh -huh. in, in, in Sartre, it's really, I, I appropriate the character. And then the question is, to what degree can I irrealize myself to perfectly appropriate it? That's always an ideal that can never be reached. Because there's always an <coughs> element of my actual being that can never be fully that can never fully realize the character. Um, but the second performance is a successful performance and I think illustrates this sense that you were talking about. Again, in a sense, in the passages that you had, again, speaking, and I read words which I don't remember having written, and then I uh -huh, speak them. Uh -huh. In a sense, that's theater as well. Yeah, right? yeah. That's well, the the yeah. first performance is successful, just not for the narrator. <laughs> but it's actually unclear, because I went back and looked at it, and uh, he talks about it in a sense that she doesn't get the intonations exactly correctly. Um, so there's a sense in which the performance itself was a bit flawed because it's as if the materiality of the sound resists complete, if you wish, uh, it's not a perfect vitalized garment of the ideal character. Uh -huh. So there's always a little, almost a, a little sort of impurities in the voice. And then at least what struck me about this is the purity of the voice and of course, he's playing on the you know the metaphor of the voice as the soul, which is clothed to present itself. Um, he also uses the language that now it's a homogeneous, translucent substances that are superimposed. Um, so it's all these surfaces that are reflecting each other. That's the nature of the voice. Um, Please try to liberate people. <laughs> are you still 